Hello, welcome to this week's How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. At How To Academy, we invite some of the most exciting thinkers in global culture to give live stream talks on art, science, and ideas. A little before Christmas, we hosted Yale professor, poet, and MacArthur fellow Claudia Rankine, whose latest book, Just Us An American Conversation, explores race and white supremacy in the US and asks how humans can best approach each other across our differences. She was in conversation with Guardian columnist Owen Jones. Firstly, in terms of the book title, it comes from a Richard Pryor quote about the courthouse. You go down here looking for justice, and that's what you find in just us. Do you want to just talk about that? Hi, Owen. Thank you for joining me. It's a real honor. The quote came after the title. I, you know, my my one directive to myself as a writer is to stay intimate to always work from that position first. And so I just us seemed appropriate. You know, it's like you and I are talking. It's just us. So let's just say what things we say. But then a friend of mine who is an amazing um, visual artist, Alexandra Bell, she said to me, did you take that from Richard Pryor? And I said, no. But then she reminded me of the joke. And I included it because I love the way that just us in that um, joke, you go down to the courthouse looking for justice and find justice. You don't know exactly where the just us attaches. You assume just us means black people because it's Richard Pryor, but it could also mean that the only people who get justice are white people. So I loved the floatingness of that. In the book, you talk about white living rather than white privilege. What do you mean? White living. Let's talk about that. Well, because in the conversations um, with that I had, the only kind of set up conversations in the sense that I went out to have them rather than they just happened, mm-hmm. were the conversations I had with white men on airplanes. And I found that every time I mentioned white privilege, they thought I was talking about economic privilege. And I realized, oh, that word is a misnomer. We shouldn't use it because it allows a kind of diversion into talking about how you got $10 versus how I got $10. And so I felt like I was always backpedaling to explain to them, no, I'm just talking about your ability to be in the world, to walk around without being surveilled, to to not be racially profiled, to not be shot as you're trying to enter into your house. And so I had more luck when I started saying white living. I just, I just wanted you to think about what it means for you to be able to live in the world without the things that I have to consider every day. And so that was, that's how I made the transition. But it was through talking to people and realizing that the understanding immediately took them to class privilege, which you're used to talking about over in Britain. What you go into details, you talk about how white Americans just frankly don't understand just how profoundly embedded anti-black racism is at every level of American culture, right down to the glamorization of, of blonde hair, for example. I mean, you, you say it's, it's really a moment for us to slow down and understand that a white supremacist orientation has determined almost everything in this country. It'd be great just to talk that through. 
Well, you know, um, I, as I say in the essay, I was giving a talk at a predominantly black college and a black female professor asked me what to say to her black students who dyed their hair blonde. And I, you know, I, I felt like they should do whatever they want, basically, because, you know, I'm a mom. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't believe in, in telling people not to do things if it's not going to hurt them. Exactly. But then I started asking people why they had dyed their hair. Because I thought, you know, I won't presume that I know. And the more white people I asked, the more I realized that the answer I kept getting was because I'm treated better. And then I thought, well, why would you be treated better if you have blonde hair over brown hair, for example? And clearly that goes back to what is valued. And then if you look at what is valued, you then ask the question, why is it valued? Why is it valued over another thing? And then it's hard not to get back to a kind of Nazi Germany mentality and, and questions of eugenics and, and who is valued versus who is not valued. So it's not true for everyone. Some, you know, it's close to gray hair. So I think older women sometimes like to hear blonde because it kind of blends in with the gray. But I think when you have so many um, media people, for example, who are blonde, what's the message being sent with that? And so that essay came out of just a kind of low-level journalism of talking to people and taping them on the street. Um, I did it with one of your fellow journalists in London initially. Which fellow journalist? Well, with, with Joe Wheeler. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes, of course. Yes. She, she had contacted me and said, you know, do you want to do a, um, a radio piece on blondness? And so she and I walked around and we talked to people. And it was incredible the things that they would say, you know, some people literally said, you know, it makes me brighter and lighter and whiter. <laughs> and, 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 you know, for people of color, it's a different thing. I think for them, it's a kind of drag. Um, it's a performance of something. It doesn't allow passage into whiteness in the same way. It, it can make people more relatable if you're people like a, a major star like Beyonce or um, a television talk host or whatever. I mean, these encounters you had with various white men in, air, in airports. So one, it'd be interesting to talk this one through. This was uh, that learns that you teach at Yale and complains about his son's inability to play the diversity card. You yourself not trying to explain to you, you being at Yale. <laughs> I mean, just talk me through that as a kind of what that reveals. Well, if, you know, those moments when I approach men and began I, I don't in my real life I don't hang out with men I'm, I'm not a big sports person beyond tennis and and my husband he and I hang out and he's white but I don't hang out with lots of white men and so I thought I would just I, I you know in the before times I traveled a lot and I was on airplanes a lot and um, I thought why not ask him and this guy he and I were waiting for a flight and once he learned I taught at Yale, he, um, he wanted to talk about his son's admissions. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't know, I think it was partly maybe I, to give him a benefit of the doubt, I would say it was a little bit of a joke, you know. 
But then I, the more he spoke, the more I realized, no, he's serious. <laughs> Um, because he started talking about playing the diversity card. And then later he brings up the son's friend who is Asian and how that guy got in and his son didn't. And then you suddenly begin to see a kind of demonstration of a grievance that um, people of color are taking the place that his son naturally should have. And we're hearing it. You know, what's funny. I feel like we're hearing it a lot now. But we're hearing it through the lens of um, we have to hire Black people. We're being forced to hire Black people, not from the point of view of this place is so monop, you know, same in its hiring practices that we should actually think about ways to diversify this institution or this, this office or this class. Instead, what I'm hearing is a language of we're being forced to hire a black person. We're being forced to hire a brown person. And I'm hearing it from all over in response to the new sort of anti-racist measures that have been put in place lately. Well, one of the encounters, I mean, it, it really struck me. It's almost a cliche used by, by those who are, are tone deaf at best on issues of racism, which is to say that they're colorblind. And you had this experience on a, on a plane. Do you want to talk through this particular experience? Well, this one, um, I was sitting next to a guy and he was a very nice guy. He and I got on very well. And, and I think the, the more we got on and the more we sheared, the more he probably felt he needed to take away our differences to present a kind of sameness and safeness in the conversation. So he eventually said um, he didn't see color. And that for me always is a moment when I shrink a little bit, because for me, if you don't see color, then you're not really attuned to racism. You're not attuned to the ways in which I am treated differently from you. And so he said that, but what was fantastic about that conversation is um, when I called him on it and said, you know, what does that even mean? I didn't say those words, but he said, what other inane things have I said? And it was unusual for me to be confronted with somebody who wasn't defensive, who, who was actually able to enter into a discussion about something he said without feeling like they have to hit back or in some way um, declare they didn't say it or they didn't intend that, you know, or whatever. We were able to just discuss why maybe it's an appropriate thing to even think. And since then, we've become friends. Oh, wow. How did yeah, he do the use of the anecdote in the book? Um, well, he, well, what happened was I wrote, the, I wrote that piece initially for the New York Times. It's the first piece that was written. And when it was going to be published, I felt bad because I really liked the guy. You know, I thought he was a great guy. <laughs> and I didn't want him to open up the newspaper and see what was now a private conversation in the paper. And he had written me, because it's easy to find me, you know, you go to Yale, my email is there. And he had written me to say, that he would like to have um, dinner with me and my husband. And we had tried to get together, but it didn't work just time-wise. And so I had his email. So I, I wrote to him and I said, you know, I just want you to know that this essay will 
appear in the paper. And if there's anything you think I misrepresent, let me know. And if you have a response, I would love to get that response. And he, as you know from the book, he wrote a response. And the response also was surprising because in the response he said, um, during a conversation, I told you something that wasn't true. And I don't know why I did it. And the thing he said was that, he, you know, growing up, there was no racial strife in his high school or neighborhood or anywhere. And, um, but in his response, he said that wasn't true. And in fact, there was a, a really a lot of negative behavior, mostly white people to black people as he was growing up, but there was a desire to kind of push it under the rug, forget about it and claim otherwise. Was there a sense of apprehension? Because so much, if we look at the political phenomena of our age on both sides of the Atlantic is so defined by white male rage in particular, did you feel an apprehension of each time in terms of probing these strangers on planes and elsewhere about how they might react? Because we know that male, that white male rage is, is real and has horrifying, devastating examples of it. Yeah. You know, I oddly, I didn't think about it, which is surprising, but I, I didn't think, I, I thought, well, um, people might be rude. They might not want to talk to me. I expected that. There was one guy that um, was standing in front of me on the, uh, the line to board the plane. And he said to me, you know, I cannot stand the news. I love airplanes. I love that time because it's just quiet. I hate the news. I hate, you know, every, every day now, it's just this, it's that, it's so many news. And I said to him, you know, you shouldn't have voted for him. And then he turned to me and he got, he, he's the angriest person that um, I encountered. And he said to me, it's not just him. And I said, no, it's not just him, but, you know. But he never spoke to me again. But uh, on the flight, he would just turn around and glare at me and then <laughs> and turn back. But he's the, you know, he, in the entire time that I engaged in these conversations, that's my only, maybe now I think about it, there might have been one or two others, but that was one of the more pointed ones. I mean, but otherwise people were very civil. It'd be interesting, I mean, because th- there was the... the jumping on another anecdote about a dinner dinner party uh, in which a kind of neighborhood dinner party. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm just interested in this phenomenon about, because it'd be interesting to kind of work out exactly what's going on here, this sense of kind of the fact that you as a black woman is asking searching questions about which make these white people feel uncomfortable all of a sudden, but almost offended. This is some sort of social rudeness. You're breaking etiquette. So do you want to explain that dinner party when you're talking about Trump and the reasons for Trump's victory and then a, a silencing mechanism essentially is used against you and what this yeah. phenomenon is? Well, I, you know, that dinner party happened because we were trying to figure out or all our kids go to the same school together. So we were trying to figure out some stuff. And then there was someone there who was writing a book on why the 2016 election went the way it did. 
And there was lots of talk about economic this and economic that and economic this. And I said, well, he ran on race. He ran on racism. He, he ran on exclusionary policies in terms of um, immigration, in terms of the wall, in terms of black people. He has said things like, um, I'm a nationalist, use that word, use that word. And so why can't we say that this was about um, white supremacy and that was the agenda people voted for? Why can't we admit that the voters voted for exactly what he put forward as his agenda? And at that dinner party, a woman who was sitting across from me in, you know, in the middle of this discussion, pointed to the brownies and said, oh, aren't those beautiful? And, you know, it's that moment where I, you know, I'm almost 60. I know you're not supposed to do this thing, but I decided I would, I would say, you know, I understand that this is a silencing mechanism you're employing right now. So I said, am I being silenced? And that breaks the law of civility, um, that in in the ways in which we understand it and know it and but i knew it so it wasn't unconscious i knew what i was doing but that also was a moment when the entire dinner party kind of <laughs> um felt ruptured and um, my husband it, it was such a palpable feeling of people just turning to me as as the bad person and my husband leaned over and said should we leave and <laughs> I, I was like, no, I don't think we can because, you know, other things were still there to be hammered out. So, you know, civility. Civility has been a mechanism used by white supremacy to keep discussions from entering into the world of the real in a kind of way. One of my uh, friends, uh, Ash Sarko, I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a very prominent uh, journalist, commentator, academic here. Uh, and I was chatting to her earlier because she knew I was, I was in conversation with you. She's a huge, huge fan of your work. One thing she did want to ask was the off, that a lot of the work, and this isn't a criticism of you, it's just, well, you'll no, see. Go, go, go for it. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not, no, it's about the yeah. genre in a sense, is this inherent in that it, it focuses on, on, on how white supremacy manifests itself in middle-class spaces in the British sense, bourgeois spaces, uh, more privileged spaces, like the first-class queue. In, in, a, in an airport or, or a dinner party. Uh, though I think dinner parties here are more associated with bourgeois life. But anyway, and, and he was, she was wondering, is there kind of more limited room in the literary world for writing on the subtleties of the Black experience in working class settings? Well, no, I think, in fact, working class settings is where the writing usually happens. Yeah. And the decision was to put it in in the world that I exist in so that I could be accountable to the consciousness of the speaker inside just us. Um, one of the things I, in Citizen was that I, though I describe things, I wasn't willing to create an unconscious life in that book because many of the stories were collected from other people, some working class, some um, upper class, some, you know, um, so all kinds of people. So in this book, I thought I am, I am going to use my life and I'm not going to pretend that I have less privilege than I do in the interactions that I'm writing about. And the upper middle class life that I have 
does not shield me from any of these acts of racism. You know, um, so that was a conscious choice to go because that's not a place that gets interrogation, I believe, in the way that it should. Because many of these, the people who belong to that class in terms of the white people are the people who are involved in the policy making and the hiring and the firing inside institutions. And so I wanted to go there. I wanted to go in, in another way of saying it to, to the power base in a, in a sense uh, to show that the people who make the policies institutionally are also the people socially, intimately, who carry a lot, many racist views. So that was completely an intention of the, the entire exercise. Um, I mean, one of the things which really comes out in the book is this bit, I mean, it's full of searching questions, but one is, is this an inherent resistance on the part of white people to support the necessary change that would need to take place because of a lack of incentive that there, this is a, this means addressing a system which is systematically rigged in their favor from cradle to grave. I mean, you say white people don't really want change. Uh, if, it, if it means they need to, to think differently than they do about who they are. Well, exactly. I mean, I, the setup of justice was we will have, I will, use my personal life to look at how these microaggressions to use, you know, these are moments that are not, they're not going to kill anybody. Nobody's being shot, but how those moments actually fit into systemic racism institutionally and how it butterflies out into the larger questions. So wait, what was the other half of your question? The end of the question. It was it was that resistance to change. Yeah. So the resistance that what what on a how on earth in a sense that this is a problem that exists with white people. So, right. So so the idea was that these people are not separate from the institutions that are normally named racist. Mm-hmm. You know, like if this were one of the the fictions that exists in in the U.S. is that racism belongs to uneducated Southern people. And if that were true, I mean, yeah, they're racist, but if, but they don't have the power. Those people are not inside the Senate. They're not inside. They might be inside a jury box, but, you know, so I I really wanted to talk about how whites have developed within themselves the convenient belief that they themselves are not taking the racism from home into their jobs as judges, as lawyers, as doctors, as teachers, as, you know, whatever they do. And that those people are then in charge of the lives of many of us. And the two things don't disconnect. I mean, I just read an article that was in The Guardian a few days ago about the fact that Black babies are three times more likely to die if the attending physician is white. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. 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 And that, 
It says researchers reviewed 1.8 million hospital birds records in Florida from 1992 to 2015 and established the race of the doctor in charge of each newborn's case. When cared for by white doctors, black babies are about three times more likely to die in the hospital than white newborns. This is Nina Lacani. This disparity halves when black babies are cared for by a black doctor. And what's frightening about that is only 5% of doctors are black. So you have to luck into that 5% in order to have your child survive. So that's what I'm saying, that these, these white middle-class people, upper middle-class people who are in their house believing that they have no power over the system, and then they go into the hospital and they don't believe a black person. And that black person doesn't have to be poor. That black person is Serena Williams. That black person is, you know, Michelle Obama talking about how in the hospitals, doctors wouldn't believe them when they said things about their experiences having a child and leading to near death experiences in the case of Serena Williams. So that's what I'm talking about. Like the space is very, there is no space. There is no gap between the bourgeois middle-class person who feels like I'm gonna throw my hands up and then what they do when they leave their house and move into the institution of the hospital, the legal system, the justice system, whatever. In terms of in this country, because obviously anti-black racism is profoundly embedded in in, in British culture, of course, and the specific, you know, that there are specific qualities to each culture and their different manifestations but but the commonalities are obviously more than striking and there's been this well there was this episode a few months ago I'm loath to mention the actor's name so I'm just not going to do it but there's a a someone from a a very privileged background from a very privileged actors a family of actors uh suddenly he went on BBC question time and almost he's become this figurehead of this anti-woke so-called backlash in this country where he will claim that even talking about white privilege or whiteness is what he calls it racist. I mean, this is the level of discourse we're, we're now, we're now at in this country, but it's genuine rage and he's tapped into a genuine rage. And you can see this predominantly white men, not, not exclusively men, but predominantly white men, very, very angry. Even the mention of whiteness, let alone white privilege, it does produce often this almost hysterical rage amongst white men. What's that process? How, what's our understanding of that? Well, I think, you know, white patriarchy, before we even talk about racism, we have to understand what white patriarchy is. And that was the understanding that white men own everything including women's bodies, you know, including (laughs) everything. And this idea that you have to share your resources and that in fact, you might not have actually worked for certain things, but that you, by virtue of the fact that you were a white male, were given certain things, that's hard to metabolize. But in, you know, in um, Just Us, the um, documentary filmmaker, Whitney Dow, talks about that, that this is a narrative that these, these men grew up with. 
mm-hmm. that they they um the sort of um Horatio Alger we worked for everything we had and so we're owed all of this and so now to be told that in fact no the culture was set up to benefit you and you did not work for it and 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 women are equal to you and people of color are the same as you that is the pill they don't want to swallow and and yet they know it you know they know it but the rage is a way of preventing change from happening it's not it doesn't prevent knowledge from happening but it prevents um change from happening and there's a whole industry in place to keep these men wound up you know the the whole talk radio industry where you get the vitriol that is anti-immigration anti-muslim anti-black anti um women to some extent hey there i'm dr maya shankar and i'm a scientist who studies human behavior many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything that instantly divides our life into a before and an after on my podcast a slight change of plans i talk to people about navigating these moments Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've got so many questions coming in, so I'm I'm about to move. I'll I'll shift on and bring in the audience. But because the election is, is, is next week... One of the things that strongly kept... I mean, there was always this view of history, the so-called Whiggish view of history, which really should have died in... On the, in the Somme and certainly in Auschwitz-Birkenau, which was that history is this linear progression towards, uh, you know, constantly towards enlightenment and liberty and all the rest of it. And obviously the 20th century uh, destroyed that as a concept. But that aside, it is striking how after the civil rights movement, all Republican presidential candidates would use blatantly racially codified language to tap into white lash against the civil rights movement. So they would talk about welfare queens, I suppose. That's a that's a striking kind of, you know, Ronald Reagan would use that language. And it was it was clear, hence the, do- the, the term dog whistle, I suppose, who he was talking about and whose prejudices and bigotries he was tapping into. And it's not just also the Repu- Republicans, Democrats as well. Of course, the infamous example in 1992 presidential election when Bill Clinton went home to to uh, ensure the execution of of a black man with uh who had learning difficulties his his wife you know Hillary Clinton spoke of super predators and so on for which he later apologized what is so striking though and not falling back on the wig of history is how in tw- it t- in 20 it, it's the overt racist language of Trump which does mark him out from George W. Bush or, or or Reagan even, because it was more subtly codified and dog whistle. Why in 2016 and 2020 did we end up with a president who used just overt racist language in a way his predecessors didn't feel politically able to do so? Well, I think um, I think he understood the racism that existed in this country, um, as everybody does. But there's always been, it's sort of like a gentleman's thing where, as you say, the war on crime is a kind of way of dog whistling 
black people and mass incarceration. There, there were all these terms that everybody understood um, low-income housing um, to mean black oh, yeah. communities. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and I think when he came in, he, you know, some people argue he didn't think he would win, so he just did it. But but he knew that that was a winning position to take in, in terms of anti-immigration and in terms of racism. And he just is himself. I, I, I think in some ways he is the most honest president we've had. Because if you look at the policies of the presidents before him, they run in support of many of the policies that he would want. So it's, you know, I think he amplified something that was very much on course in this country, or else we wouldn't have the kinds of attitudes towards the killing of Black people that we have. Um, and that stay prevalent and have to be supported, not just by the police, but by the justice system. You know, you have the police again and again being allowed to return to the streets to kill unarmed Black people. And that that has been, um, that's how people have got into politics by running on hard on crime, which really means hard on Black people <laughs> in the United States and permission to shoot them. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that he just understood what was there, understood that people would vote for that, and, and, and they did. And it was hard for some, you know, and also I think running alongside was the misogyny of white men as well against Hillary Clinton. And she wasn't exciting to a young populace, so they stayed home. So all of those things came together to put him in office. So I'm going to bring in some questions. I've got, got one here. To what extent did Baldwin's essay, Strange in the Village, influence your writing and your desire to spark this American conversation? I think Baldwin's work, you know, is hugely influential for many people, black and white. Um, I don't know if Stranger in the Village was the essay I would point to. I mean, I, you know, somebody, a writer like Teju Cole, for example, has engaged that essay in his work directly. And I certainly think it's an important essay. But I, I, there, The Fire Next Time is an essay that I, you know, or a book that I, I find particularly insightful about certain things. Um, but Baldwin, you know, Baldwin, it doesn't matter if you take an essay, a book, a conversation, um, anything, a letter, anything he has written has always understood that you can't address racism without addressing whiteness. And, and that's how Baldwin, I think, has separated himself out as a, a thinker of American politics from others like Richard Wright, for example. I have a question from Harriet. How do you use and think about the book's layout, in particular, the function of fact-checking, citation, quotation, and so on? Well, in Just Us, I, I was really interested in myself as a subject, as, as, an, as a narrator. And I wanted to say that in these conversations, as a Black person, I am not in a default right position. Mm -hmm. 
And so I wanted to create a structure in this book that allowed me to also question the things that I said, the beliefs that I had. And so coming up with the verso recto relationship where there are times when I might have said something and then I fact check it and it's close, but it's not exactly right. So I wanted to show that, that inside these conversations, we're bringing what we know and what we know maybe is right, maybe is not exactly right. So how could I show that as I take apart these conversations? And one of the mechanisms was to fact check and to show the fact checking. Another mechanism was to hire a psychiatrist for this book, which I did. And she and I discussed every one of these essays. I also showed the essays to a lawyer. I showed them to sociologists. I showed them And then eventually I sent them back to the person I had the conversation with and gave them the option to write a response. Here's another question. So in Britain, young African, Afro-Caribbean men's well-being is known to be incrementally weathered and eroded by daily experiences of racism and social exclusion, including persistent and incremental exposure to negative narratives. How do we encourage systemic change without adding to the trauma? I mean, that's the question. That is, that is the, you know, the, the million dollar question. How do we let people know about the killing of Black people without circulating videos where Black people are being killed and traumatizing people, seeing more Black people killed? You know, those are the kinds of questions that, that we have been thinking about. And for me, one way to do that is to go into the same argument, but, but look at how the white players are functioning rather than focusing mm-hmm. on the black subject in these interactions. And, you know, for some black people, that has been a disappointment. They, you know, they feel like I'm not talking about blackness, but I don't know how you can be talking about white supremacy and not be talking about blackness. You know, it's like saying um, for a long time, there was that notion that um, Teju Cole has in, in the white industrial um, complex. That's not exactly the right title, but where he talks about having um, racism without racists. And so what, what we are trying to do partly at the Racial Imaginary Institute is to create counter narratives, to go into the same moments, but go in by looking at what white people are doing in these interactions rather than always focusing on the pain of black people, which has been the focus up until now. We've got some profound but simple questions. Do you think we customarily lie to ourselves as well as to others? I think we are committed to narratives that um, give us comfort, keep us safe, um, allow us to believe in our own innocence, our lack of culpability, for example. So, so I, I don't know if lie is the word, but, but we certainly have the narratives that allow us to move through our day and manage our lives. And what I'm calling for in just us is in thinking about our positions and the things we say and the things that are said to us is perhaps maybe we can manage these moments differently if we're less committed to certain narratives. What do you think defines kindness? You know, Franz Fanon, the Algerian psychiatrist and theorist, talks about 
reciprocal recognitions. And that is a phrase I'm really interested in. It's, it's really understanding things from where you stand versus only from where I stand. I mean, people use the word empathy, but I like this idea of reciprocity. What I'm asking from you is the same thing that I would like to give to you. And so this idea of um, reciprocal reciprocity, in fact, I think I have the quote here. He says, as soon as I desire, I am asking to be considered. I am not merely here and now sealed into thingness. I am for somewhere else and for something else. I demand that notice be taken of my negating activity insofar as I pursue something other than life, insofar as I do battle for the creation of a human world. That is a world of reciprocal recognitions. And so that idea that we're out for a human world and the only way we're going to get it is if we, if I can understand what you try to understand what you're seeing and, and, and you give me the same courtesy. Another question here, I'm going to give a bit of context to just to explain it. So why do you think the equalities minister in this country spoke out against Black History Month and said that teachers would be breaking the law if they discussed critical race theory. Now, actually, my understanding of this, I've just Googled this, partly with my journalist hat on, I'm always wary of just being sued by conservative ministers. Um, so my understanding here actually is, actually, I don't know about the Black History Month incident there, but I do know about an incident in which Kemi Badenoch, who is... She's actually a Treasury minister. She did a parliamentary speech in which she said teachers would be breaking the law if they discussed critical race theory. And I mean, as as in America, well, not as in America, we have the Labour Party here. The vast majority of Black Britons vote support the Labour Party in this country. And obviously, overwhelmingly, Conservative MPs are white. She is a Black woman who made this statement. And... Uh, critical race theory isn't taught in schools, uh, but they used a, uh, she used a kind of, you know, a caricatured kind of, they're being taught that, you know, about white privilege and, 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 and so on and how harmful this is. And this is obviously when the government is very serious trouble over the pandemic. And also uh, there's a furore about them not providing food for children during the school holidays which is a big thing but this was a row which was thrown in as a curveball so that's the context okay i mean we have the same thing happening here as you said with um a condemnation of critical race theory i mean critical race theory is actually um a way of looking at history that includes slavery, includes anti-Blackness, includes the history that has been suppressed in order to present white benevolence as the truth of history, you know? Mm -hmm. And obviously um, people are in a sense afraid of it. I mean, mm -hmm. this is why in Poland, you can't say that the Holocaust happened in Poland. It's a, a rewriting of history, a rewriting of how you think about the events of history, of what events you actually focus on in history. And it's clearly, uh, I hate to say it, but it is a fascist attempt to control what we read and, and what we know. It goes back to this idea of, of slaves not being educated. 
And now it's asking the American public not to be educated because people do not want to be accountable to the modes of um, violence and oppression that this culture has engaged in and continues to engage in. So I have been told that, for example, just us cannot be used in places where they get um, public funding. You know, and um, universities like the University of Wisconsin tried to shut down, I think might have shut down classes that had to do with um, the construction of whiteness. So what we're looking at are the beginnings of fascism inside a democracy, which is why we're in a constitutional crisis. Someone asked, interesting you can say, you, sorry, interesting you say everybody understands racism in the USA. I don't think you said that, but how can that explain why so many black people are voting for Trump? Statistically, it's, I would point out very low, particularly among black women. Sorry, I feel I've undermined the entire question there, but that, that was the question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I, um, the idea that a small majority of a community will sign up for something that includes their own degradation is not unusual. That always happens if somebody, people have, you know, a myriad of reasons why they would do that. And Franz Fanon, as, I, as someone I brought up earlier, has written... Um, Black Skin, White Mass. And that's a book I think everybody should read because he talks about how the colonizers' anti-Black rhetoric after a while is taken in by people and they believe it themselves. That's why people bleach their skin. That's why they believe that Black people, you know, all kinds of things. And Black people believe things that are anti-Black as well. But when you think about racism, you have to think about who has the power. You know, self-hatred and racism are a little bit different. If you have no power and you support Trump, then, you know, you still have no power. If he, if you get, you know, look at Herman Cain, a supporter, a black supporter of Trump, and now a dead man from COVID because he went to a rally, did not wear a mask. And has Trump mentioned him once in a moment of regret or grievance? No, because he is expendable. Taking into account the USA's preoccupation with radical individualism from foundation to present, mm-hmm. and the UNI of citizen, is there a hope for unified American we, a collective identity that encompasses the whole us? Well, I think this idea that there was ever a single public in the US is a fiction. You know, and I think one of the things that's wonderful about the grassroots movements like Black Lives Matter or showing up for racial justice, which is basically a white movement, is that the different publics are now coming together. The Me Too movement politicized white women in a way that allowed for the March on Washington, the Women's March on Washington, which I think also led to the politicization of the white women in the protest movements that we saw in Portland. So we continue to have, we will never have a single public, but we have intersectionality that, you know, something that Angela Davis talks about and many others that understands the ways in which um, certain policies will benefit each of these 
different publics in different ways, but equally good ways. And, and so I think that is something we can achieve in this country, even if it's not a universal moment. But we don't want, it's not a, it's not a drive towards sameness. I mean, you like, I like, we should, democracy should have competing interests trying to further the discussion around what democracy means for all of us. Uh, just to wrap up, because we are nearly out of time, though security can't drag us off stage. That's one of the only advantages of this. <laughs> um, but just to wrap well, with a quick quip from Carmen, uh, who asked, do you have any dramas or plays in the pipeline? But also, given the American election next week, do you think, now I don't want to be hostage to fortune here, given what happened last time. I personally thought Trump was going to win last time, so covering myself. But if, as seems more likely than 2016, Trump loses... Do you think there's a danger? There's always been this type of self-defined centrist and moderate who looks at political phenomena like Trump as something that just landed out of a clear blue sky. It was almost kind of a glitch in the matrix, an aberration. And finally, you know, it can be just be forgotten about as this terrible nightmare that was inflicted upon America for four years. And now civility can be restored and, and, and this so-called moderation and, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the Obama White House and, you know, its decency will be restored. And without looking at what you talk about, the racism, the other, the what laid the foundation for the for Trump to arrive, because he didn't arrive from a clear blue sky. Exactly. So just those two things, any dramas or plays in the pipeline. And also, do you think there's a danger with Biden that people will just pretend this was an aberration and nothing else? OK, so uh, I think November 1st, there is a film that's being done that will be released on the Shed website um, called November. And we took the play Help. That was really a critique of this White House and a call to um, civic participation in November and made it into a monologue. So it will be five actors and it was filmed by Philip Yeoman, who did um, Burning Cane, that film. Um, and so that will be released on the Shed website on November 1st. In terms of anxiety that we will oust the sitting president and then return to a fantasy that all has been fixed, I don't think so. I don't think that will happen. But that is always the problem that we develop a kind of apathy in the face of the good guys getting in. But two things will have to happen to create that apathy. Biden-Harris will have to win and the Senate will have to have a democratic majority. The Supreme Court now has a conservative or will have, assuming that the um, handmaiden that is up for consideration is ratified, will have a conservative majority. Also, one of Mitch McConnell's projects over the last three and a half years was to put conservative judges for life in as many positions that were open of up to 120 across the federal government. So that's what we are faced with. We're faced with an extremely reactive, conservative 
Supreme Court and justice system, hopefully a executive branch and a Senate that will be able to work together. And those things, those two groups will be at war for the next four years. But, you know, what we're hoping that Biden can bring back with, along with Harris, to the White House is competency. The, you know, we're over 200,000 people dead in this country, and some of them would die anyway. We have the COVID-19 as you have. But some of it had to do with incompetence and cold-hearted, it is what it is. And so that part of it, I think people are anxious to get in place. And that's the part that I hope won't lead to complacency when we get qualified people back in positions that they should have been holding all along. Claudia, that was a a fantastic conversation with you. Uh, I think everyone watching it learned a huge, huge amount, as they will, if they've not already read read your book, which everyone should do. And we can, fingers crossed, the struggle. Yes. Whatever happens. (laughs) Whatever happens. But hopefully the right thing will happen. Exactly. And hopefully we'll embolden uh, forces within this country who are currently under under, under siege because there has been a positive feedback loop with the respective reactionary movements on both sides Mm -hmm. of the Atlantic. So we can can certainly hope because the... uh, Again, the specifics differ, but the commonalities are are disturbing enough. But thank you so, so much. It was a real, real honour and and real privilege. And uh, a huge thank you on behalf of everybody who's watched. I'm sure everyone's, as I've said, learned a huge, huge amount. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. This week's guest was Claudia Rankin and the presenter was Owen Jones. The episode was produced by Esme Bright and myself. And the editor is John Doughty. Claudia's book, Just Us, is out now. We'll be back next week when I meet Oxford philosopher Toby Ord to discuss humanity's chances of making it through the 21st century. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. many of us are waking up to the social and environmental cost of our never-ending appetite for new clothes. But can the fashion industry truly become sustainable? And how? What can we do as consumers and investors to accelerate the transition to fair labor and eco-friendly production? And what role does the media play in all of this? Listen to award-winning designer Patrick Grant, Vanity Fair editor Michelle Danatan, and Big Asset Management's Caroline Rail discuss these and many other questions in the latest episode of Found in Conversation, a podcast produced by the How To Academy in association with the Bicta Group. Each month, we bring together some of the world's most exciting thinkers and business leaders to share ideas for understanding and improving the modern world. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.